From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is the ER. We saw a lot of people that showed up that were like immediate victims of violence that had had, you know, that had either been shot, um, although there were also lots of, you know, blunt force trauma and, and, and lacerations from what we would guess would be machete wounds or something. That's Pablo Colavos. He's head of mission for Doctors Without Borders in Bangladesh. He was on the ground there last summer and early fall when almost 700,000 ethnic Rohingya Muslims fled Myanmar on foot. Journalists weren't allowed into Myanmar to see what was happening, but human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, began collecting stories and aerial images. Whole villages burned to the ground, children murdered, women raped. Among the first responders meeting those refugees at the border of Bangladesh was Doctors Without Borders, or Médecins Sans Frontières. Pablo, thank you so much for joining us. I want to know, what did it feel like, what did it look like to see that number of people crossing the border, pouring over the border? Yeah, actually. So I remember that that uh, just the week before, um, so the Rohingya situation is taken care of in Bangladesh by this national task force that's like... Um, established by the prime minister's office, and they just had like a meeting in in Cox Bazar, talking, you know, kind of getting over the last eighty thousand refugees who had who had just come in um, from the year before, and and we had expected that there was a possibility for further tensions to create more uh, more refugees to coming in. Um, we were preparing for thinking, you know, somewhere between forty and sixty or eighty thousand. Uh, more refugees, and within the first couple of days, we realized that we'd already hit that. I mean, on on August twenty eighth or something like that, just a few days afterwards, I was on the border um, in a place called Anjbunpara, looking at about four thousand refugees who were just standing on the other side of of a river, and and the border is not highly defined. I mean, there are some places where there's a fence and a wall, but for the most part, it's not like a a heavily patrolled space. But they were just Coming over, and, and Bangladesh wasn't effectively stopping them from coming in, but you could tell that they didn't want to leave. But they, and so you kind of see this when people get to a, a border space and they set up tent and and kind of look over their shoulder and see if maybe this is something that they can go back because they left their houses and they left their fields and they left their um, other communities and and knowing that if they left, there would be, they would not be going back for for quite some time, but. Once it was apparent that they weren't able to to hang out in this, you know, this no man's land um, between the between the two countries, they came and they joined the um, the already freshly expanded refugee camp um, in in Kutbalong. And uh, what did the camp look like? Uh, I mean, in the, in the first month, it was absolute chaos when, I mean, people just camped out. Our offices and house in in Ukia, the town closest to, to Kutupalong, um, was normally about a seven-minute drive in the morning from from the house to the, the hospital. Um, and within yeah, two weeks of, of the influx starting, we had, uh, it would, would take an hour and a half, two hours to navigating people around. Just, around just people. because the roads were just completely slammed full of, full of people. Also, a lot of uh, informal relief that was coming down. Um, I mean, Bangladesh has a long history of humanitarian response and 
um, understands what disasters are and what what suffering is, and and so political groups, religious groups, any other charitable groups, all kind of pack trucks filled with. Uh, um, young men and women, and a lot of things to give away, and driving down. But at that at that time, it was the streets were just littered with with uh, clothes and plastics, and I mean of of things that were not necessary. You know, just kind of as we see uh, misguided charitable giving kind of everywhere in the world. It's like not canned food that solves homelessness. It's the same thing that all, you know, the refugees didn't need piles of clothes. What they needed was to be safe from violence and, um, and they needed some shelter to, to house in. And, um, but uh, the situation regulated a little bit, the Bangladesh government. Wait, um, before it regulated, yeah. what do people look like? And, you know, I saw these images of people carrying elderly on their back and babies on their front what did they look like? What condition were they in? Yeah, people were were super traumatized. It was it was just completely obvious. You could see. Um, I mean, one thing one thing that I noticed was the, the the shoes that you would see on some people that they like you know had people that were not used to walking a distance in the shoes that they left their houses with or what they chose to put on as they left their houses were were like this example of the fact that they had just walked out the, the door and then they some of them had walked for days and had been hiding um, in that uh, and I mean in the first month we we saw a lot of people that showed up that were like immediate victims of violence that had had you know that had either been shot um, although there were also lots of you know blunt force trauma and, and and lacerations from what we would guess would be machete wounds or something, um, but uh, yeah, they they were lost. They didn't know which way was which way was up. They just knew that. Uh, I mean, were families torn apart? Did you did people start? What were the stories they were carrying? Well, um, no, the stories were were horrific and and countless when it came down to it. I mean, we we were in, both in the hospital and, and getting testimonies from people at the border. Um, yeah, they they talked about how their their houses were burned and how people were killed and how their their, their children were thrown into fires and how their um, and um, how they were segregated and forced to watch women be raped and so it was you can you can uh, those stories were were quite common but you had one hospital at what point did you say this isn't enough or did you in in the beginning I mean the triage certainly the the, the biggest need that we had um, was uh, yeah, emergency referral and there's no surgical capacity in that region. I mean, the, the closest hospital that could respond to that, the, the level of trauma that we were seeing and, and people that were coming over, the, the worst cases was a couple hours north. I mean, I remember we converted all of our, our just passenger vehicles to ambulances and we were just at a constant rotation um, and we didn't have enough, uh, we, you know, we struggled to find nurses to um, be able to accompany those patients and we would put as many as we could and to transfer them to the, the hospitals further north. 
um, that could do the surgery. And, and so our emergency room was stabilizing people and holding them for transfer. And, and if, if we, you know, minor surgeries that could be done in the emergency room um, would be done. So we expanded from that one hospital and one outreach clinic to uh, now we've got five hospitals, another one that's, uh, that's an outpatient that's ready to become a hospital if necessary. Go back to the trauma question. How do you approach them in terms of the trauma? You know, you, you mentioned raped women. I had read one statistic that earlier earlier studies had shown that something like one in two women had been raped. Yeah, the emotional trauma was basically overwhelming. I mean, there was there's only so much that you can actually do when you're facing also the physical trauma and the immediate needs for shelter and food. But when you talk about hundreds of thousands of people in that case, um, the, the the counseling sessions, the one-on-one, not having enough people who are, are, are trained in this, like made the the counseling impact um, uh, quite quite difficult. I mean, first and foremost, somebody that's that's traumatized like that, they they just need a, a place that's safe, and and um, and that. So, firstly, Bangladesh offered that, but then only at the most basic level because by the time that you get packed into these camps that don't have roads going into them and you don't know where the market is, let alone know where the hospital is, um, and like a child can just wander out and and then just get lost. I mean, at the, for the first couple of months, it was pretty obvious to say that like that at any given time, there must be hundreds of people who are just like lost. Lost and, meaning lost from their relatives, lost from where they'd started out. Imagine if somebody just dropped you off in the middle of New York City and you didn't have a phone and you didn't and there were no street signs and no addresses or, or anything like that and you and and you said that your family is somewhere in here I mean like that's when I know uh, that's what trying to find your way through 800,000 well maybe imagine if they dropped you off in the middle of DC I think it has about the same population at 800,000 700,000 but packed in together not but packed in an area about the size of lower Manhattan yeah what, so what does the refugee camp look like and feel like now? What do the shelters look like? Are, they, are the floors dirt? Are the walls made of canvas? What, what are they made out of? Sadly, they're made out of the exact same kind of material that they've been made out of for all of the years that they've been living in this same camp. I mean, when I first visited the camp in end of 2016, uh, I was pretty shocked to see that, that this was the, the quality that people have been living in bamboo huts mm-hmm. um, with kind of low embankment mud walls, plastic sheeting over the roof, and then brush to hold the plastic sheeting down. And I mean, for the most part, those houses kind of keep the water out. Mm-hmm. They, um, when mixed with wind, they maybe do a less good job about it. They're they're fairly low. I don't think that, like, I can't stand up inside one of those houses. Um, How tall are you? I'm six foot. And so... Um, there's some little markets that have been established, and uh, and there are some public facilities, I, I suppose. I mean, there's there's definitely a, networks of latrines and 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 uh, and wells that have been dug. The trouble is that none of the latrines have the requisite distance from any of the water sources, and so the risk of contamination is is huge. Um, and uh, the low lying areas are prone to flooding, and the high standing areas are prone to mudslides, and and um, overall, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty bad place to build a city in three months, and yeah. 
You mentioned the, the the sort of intractability. I know there was an agreement signed between Bangladesh and Myanmar for repatriation in late winter 2017, uh, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. Does MSF lobby? Do you do you lobby governments and ask for something? And what what's the ask? You know, we're not a, a policy organization who's setting up position to to make specific recommendations on how a, a repatriation, for example, would go. What we can speak to is the level of trauma that people faced in Myanmar, the conditions that they face in Bangladesh, and and knowing that um, that any kind of situation that would result in them going back to Myanmar, it, it needs to be informed, it needs to be voluntary, um, and most importantly, it needs to be a, a safe situation. They, they need to actually have assurances, and one of the ways that we can do that and one of the big things that we do lobby for is is access for, for humanitarian actors, uh, including and especially MSF, uh, in Myanmar to be able to, to you know, put hands on, on the Rohingya and, and be able to offer them um, uh, you know, real healthcare services, but then that also means that they need to have access to food and to and to shelter and and um, and and freedom of movement. And so, um, if they were to go back, that needs to be it needs to be a, a, a better situation than what they're facing in, in Bangladesh, which is better than what they had in Myanmar. And the situation in Bangladesh is is quite dire. So you see that, like the 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 likelihood of a of a repatriation happening is, I mean, it's difficult to see how that would come around without a lot of serious work uh, on both sides. How do you how do you and how does the staff keep from becoming traumatized yourselves? I mean, <laughs> I think um, we talk to each other. Um, we have psychosocial care built in as part of the part of the, the, the volunteer and employment model. Um, it's it's difficult, I would say. And and you know, one of the things that we do for the people that that take testimonies, um, we we limit the number of testimonies that they take. Mm-hmm. Um, even though technically you could probably do four or five, six interviews in a day, and we try to keep it to less than two a day on, on average to make sure that they've got, that they've got the, the time to digest this and that they can, they can talk about it. We also you know, make sure that, um, that uh, you know, we, we rotate people out, although it's a bit tricky because we want people to be able to stay for, we want our staff to be able to stay as engaged as possible for as long as possible because that's where like the the effectiveness really kicks in is when you're not just learning the context but you you know it um but taking breaks um i mean funny enough cox bazaar is actually a vacation resort area in bangladesh and it's got um a lot of beautiful beaches and so we just try to like you know take weekends off every once in a while and um and if it's it's not terribly far from from other places so once every like you know eight weeks or something like that people can can fly out of the area just and uh i mean it's it's densely populated bangladesh there's a lot of stuff going on and in it's in the middle of a region where there's even more going on so um there's an opportunity to get a break What you're seeing in Bangladesh is, is the best and the worst of humanity simultaneously. You've got all these humanitarian organizations on the ground, and yet at the same time, you're seeing the 
ultimate in the worst that humans can do to one another. Fleeing from machete wounds and gunshot wounds and burned villages and rape. How does that how does that affect your outlook on life? How does that how does that change? How does it does it does it make you into a pessimist or an optimist? I've been doing this work for for a long time now, coming up on nine years, and um, and and I, I'd say that yeah, you're brought down by the the horrors that the world is possible, but then brought back up by the resilience that people have and the capacity for for caring and response that people have. Um, uh, I'm continually inspired by how hard everyone is is willing to work. Um, to to do something i mean in this case like you know we talk about how the all the terrible things that are going on in the world and and when you get into the people who are responding uh are are the people that tied their shoes and went to work and decided that they wanted to do something about this and so overall i'd say that I don't know if it's like a, a psychological or character flaw, but I mean, I managed to stay optimistic about how things um, how things are going, um, even if in the long run I think that there's a, a ton of danger and a, and a lot of reason to be concerned about how this goes. But for me, that's just an inspiration to keep working and to 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 stay on. You started life in Colorado. You were hiking post college. You were leading adventure tours. What led from that to humanitarian work? So really what happened is that I had a friend who had gone to work for, for MSF, and I remember he sent me an email from Angola in like 2006 or something like that and said, man, you would love this job. Like you, you, you get to make a difference, be right there solving these problems, and you're not just taking pictures. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I got out of the, the, the tour business and, and I used to work in film a bit was this – I, I did this documentary in Egypt, and and I remember I got out of it, and we were in like South Egypt, and and things were things were tough, and and uh, we weren't doing anything about it. We were just kind of trying to take the trash out of the shot to get a, a picturesque picturesque um, view of this this quaint village in South Egypt. And I, I left that, and I said, you know what, I'm not going back out unless unless I'm doing something. And when that friend sent me that email, of course, I, I, I had a, a business going and, and I said, I got a mortgage and now how on earth am I going to get out of here for nine months to go and, and, and do that? But then uh, circumstances changed and, and I remember I was, I was thinking about, you know, what would be a way that I could, could do more and, and, and be more yeah, challenged and uh, called that friend back and I said, hey, is that job still there? And and he said, "Yeah, it's kind of always there." And so I, I was the doctors with with who, what, and and uh, so I, I looked it up and and I applied. And so, um, so yeah, I kind of took that job and took a bit of a leap. And and uh, like I said, I was I was ready to walk away from it almost almost every time, but not in like total frustration, but just to say like, all right, I've done my. I've done what I needed to do, and I'm time to move on. But then, then I find that extra energy, and I say, you know what? It's, I'm not done with that yet. Hmm. Let's just keep on going. So, thank you, Pablo. I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, thank you. Safe travels. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostead and Dan Efron. 
For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to the ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music in this episode was Golden by Little Glass Men, What Have You Done by Lee Rosphere, and Gale by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you.